0: Hello, welcome to episode 112 of Lunar Poetry Podcasts, my name is David Turner. Today's episode is in two parts, coming up in the second part is a short conversation with Sandeep K. Palmer, recorded live at Verve Poetry Festival in Birmingham back in February. First up though, it's me chatting to the absolutely wonderful Mary Jean Chan, We met up mainly to chat about her debut pamphlet, A Hurry of English, which is out through the brand spanking new Ignition Press. We wind our way through the motivations of people asking her why she writes in English, finding queer and gender bending identities in the writing of Shakespeare, and how it feels to be demanding space as a published queer writer. We also touch on how and why as writers we write about home, either concretely or as a concept, and how other writers give us permission to write about certain subjects. For more information about the series, or to get in touch, find us at silent underscore tongue on Twitter, and at Lunar Poetry Podcast on Facebook and Instagram, as well as over at lunarpoetrypodcast.com where you can also find a transcript of this conversation. That transcript, and indeed the entirety of this episode, was made possible with the aid of a generous grant from Arts Council England, specifically the southwest office. If you like what Lunar Poetry Podcast does, in this episode or in general, please do shout about it to your friends and colleagues, either to their soft, meaty faces or through the cold, hard screens of their earth-poisoning devices. It really helps the series find new listeners. And when I'm looking at the SoundCloud statistics page, again at 3am, you know... If the listening figures are rising, I perhaps won't feel like I'm wasting my life. Not completely, anyway. Here's Mary-Jean.
1: My name is Mary-Jean Chan. I'm a poet and editor from Hong Kong. I have a pamphlet out right now with Ignition Press, um, with Oxford Books Poetry Centre, and also my first collection will be coming out with Faber next year. Rules for a Chinese Child Buying Stationery in a London Bookshop Speak to the white, elderly man at the counter. There will be many more of them in your life, but start with him. Recall those syllables you've whispered over and over like some version of the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven and is white and beyond skin. Enunciate. He must hear what you have to say if you are to be helped. Begin with please, say may I, end with thank you. He will be delighted to know you are polite, soft-spoken, well-mannered. You will be overjoyed at his acceptance, a palm reaching towards you for something you are able to give. You must hand over the money quickly, but not in haste. Your parents' wisdom comes from having had more salt than you have eaten rice. This proverb is untranslatable, but memorize and trust in it all the same. You are a tiny machine being oiled for the day you must face the world, a lifetime of swallow and spit ahead of you, years of salt and rice and tea.
0: Thank you, Mary-Jean. Thank you for joining me us.
1: Thank you. Thank you for having me.
0: I'm going to have to warn the listeners. We know each other a little bit now, and I may seem too relaxed and not very <laughs> professional, but I've been really looking forward to chatting to you in some capacity on the podcast anyway. We've chatted about this for a little while now. Yeah, and been part of it, But it's been yeah. really nice that we can line it up mm-hmm. with the release of your debut pamphlet yep. and Thanks. all of the other exciting stuff that we will come on to chat about afterwards i have managed to make some notes mm-hmm. for a change which i'm really terrible about doing especially if i feel like i know someone i think i don't need to make any notes but i'm really glad you chose that poem to begin with because i would made a note about that poem.
1: oh brilliant. But the line,
0: <laughs> enunciate he must hear what you have to say if you are to be helped let's begin there because it really stood out in mm. in a poem which is it's quite pointed all the way through but for right. some reason that line jumped out
2: at yeah me.
1: Interesting. I mean, I think this has to do obviously with um, a reflection on me being an ESL speaker. I mean, I was born and raised in Hong Kong, but my mother doesn't speak English. Uh, My father does. And at home, we would only speak in Cantonese. Sometimes I'd sort of play with my other dialects. So I'd speak in Mandarin Chinese or Shanghainese to my mother. But so English was always the kind of language I was learning at school. It was the language I had to perfect, especially because I went to an Anglican all-girls school. So prior to the handover of Hong Kong back to China in 1997. So I was one of those, I suppose, pre- and post-colonial babies, right? Because, um, you know, I had seven years of my schooling where, yeah, I wasn't um, in a school that basically valued Chinese as much as English. Um, It was all very implicit, but there was a sense that English was the better language, that you had to, you know, make sure your English was good. And then Chinese, you know, as long as you spoke it well. Um, So, yeah, I think there's always that thing at the back of my head where, You know, and this is a poem supposedly in the voice of um, the speaker talking to a child and teaching her how to behave in a London bookshop. This Mm. is all imaginary, but obviously lived experiences come into that, of of this perceived white gaze and how the kind of female Chinese body or child um, is supposed to behave.
0: So English was very much sort of an aspirational language.
1: Yeah, Something to... uh
0: to reach for right yeah Um, I think also what stood out to me in that line was that the sense of uh, what you need to do in order to show that you want to be helped Mm -hmm. as if that is implicit in the transaction that you're there to be aided in some way
1: yeah I suppose because also I mean the, the the line prior to that is our father who art in heaven and is white and beyond skin and I find that quite interesting because obviously now reflecting on you know the person that Jesus probably was, was that he probably had darker skin. Mm. You know, I definitely had this very pristine image of Jesus as a white man uh, growing up and our school was Anglican Christian. So, you know, there was always that sense of almost English fuses in with the image of the white God. Yeah. And, and that is the aspirational thing, that you want to one day be able to speak on equal terms with a white man, you know, an older white man, yeah. for example. That is sort of the, the ultimate goal. Um, obviously, I, I realise that's laden with, you know, colonial sort of uh, biases and all of that. But that was how we were raised in, in the school, at least. Yeah. And things have changed now. But that was, you know, how I grew up. So
0: Yeah, I think maybe that's why that poem stuck out, because it plays into so much these feelings of aspiring to, speak English but also yeah. aspiring to feel part of that culture where that language comes from exactly. and be part of the shopkeeper culture which couldn't really be much more sort of middle class right. English could it you yeah, know that it all, especially around bookshops and right
1: and you also get this kind of cultural image of the, the benevolent white old man and yeah. you know maybe he runs a candy shop or and because I grew up on Enid Blyton and mm. Rodile you get all these images that are somehow part of my repertoire of like children's books and so maybe that seeped into the poem.
0: Yeah. I was initially going to start the conversation off around the line in how it must be said. Mm. What does this say about me, this obsession written in a language I never chose, right. which seems like a starting point for the whole, not the whole pamphlet, but important parts of the pamphlet, as we just started talking about English as a second language there. Mm.
1: I think it is interesting because um, putting this pamphlet together, I was working with Alan, but the title came quite quickly that I sort of my draft title was A Hurry of English. And initially when Alan hadn't seen, Alan Buckley, my editor, hadn't seen all the poems, he was sort of like, that could be the temporary title and we'll see if it works. Mm-hmm. But um, it sort of stuck. And and the line itself is a bit odd because A Hurry of English, like, what does that even mean? It's sort of syntactically a bit odd. and But it came to me that line, my desires dress themselves in a hurry of English to avoid my mother's gaze. And I suppose that does reflect, you know, years and years of reading things that I thought were transgressive, you know, queer literature, Mm. or even just Shakespeare, but knowing that there were undertones of homoeroticism, the gender bending, really enjoying that. And also, I was doing the right thing because I was studying for my English literature class, you know, but there was a sense of that being transgressive. Uh, And because it was in a language that my mother couldn't read, I felt very safe. I felt like I wasn't betraying anything. This was me you know, perfecting my English. But at the same time, I didn't have to betray my own identity as a, you know, docile Chinese girl. Obviously, these are all stereotypes. But there was that sense growing up that Mm -hmm. I could keep these two two worlds apart, and neither would sort of affect the other.
0: It's interesting, I hadn't, obviously, I don't have the experience of having English as a second language in that way. But the pamphlet, even just talking for a couple of minutes about it, the, the structure of the pamphlet makes a lot more sense in that, the aspect it comes up in a lot of a lot of guest writing and the way they talk about it, having that protective place within their own writing mm. or within literature in general, with right. stuff that they found that they have loved, especially uh, queer writers as well, as finding that someone else talking about what the queer self is yeah. through their writing. But you found it in something that was also seen as aspirational in yes. in Hong Kong, with, yes. uh, being part of the great English canon, exactly.
1: of Shakespeare, so yeah, yeah. And I think oddly that you know that gave me courage because I wasn't out and out doing something that was wrong or perceived to be wrong. It was it was like I was doing I was doing my homework. Mm-hmm. I was reading the English books and and actually I at some point in my teenage years I started you know the ratio of my Chinese to English books started you know I guess widening the gap started widening. So for every you know five English books I read, I would read one Chinese book. Yeah. And in the past, it used to be more even, and I think maybe there was a sense that at some point I couldn't reconcile the two worlds, or it would be difficult to do so. And I'm sure there are a lot of Chinese queer literature out there, but at the time, I guess I couldn't, I didn't feel like safe enough to explore that. So English became almost the language that was that love that dare not speak its name. And, you know, that's from a poem by Lord Alfred Douglas. And because I found these traces, I was like, this is going to be my queer voice, um, or the repository for my queer desires following on from
0: that initial exploration into other queer identities that you found through the literature you're just talking about there i've noticed a lot of people will often say about they usually people say this about other writers Mm -hmm. you know when you first go out and and start writing to a point where you're first becoming published Mm -hmm. that there's a there's a chance to reinvent yourself as an artist or as a writer i was wondering if that's missing the point in that it doesn't acknowledge the, the number of writers that find their first opportunity to uh, truly identify themselves Mm -hmm. and it's not a reinvention it's just simply an expression of who they've always felt they've been
1: yeah yeah I think so because maybe there is that gap between you know the, the reader and the writer right because um a lot of people I know have written in their teenage years they wrote in their diary or they wrote poems and you know I think it'd be hard it'd be hard to find someone who's never tried writing something but then to Make that your identity, and to also, I, mean, I was speaking just now, and I was saying that um, off the record that you know this is actually quite an exposing experience. Even though all these poems have been published, most of them in different journals and magazines, somehow that always felt safer because they were these odd bits and bobs tucked away in, in a larger entity, and people might come across it if they read the whole thing, but then also they might not read it or they would skip. Um, but this this whole unified seemingly unified thing which is a pamphlet um, for the first time puts all of these different poems together and and that for me feels like wow someone can actually if they care to read it they would they would find out a lot about myself but also you know I suppose my imagined selves and all that how
0: do you reconcile the the aspect of how demanding your work becomes once it's a single author pamphlet or book Mm because it goes into that thing you are not flanked by other writers or no. you're not sharing a space anymore no, you're exactly. you would we'll definitely come onto this as well mm. as as a queer mm. writer right. um suddenly having the space to yourself yeah. in a way that perhaps you might not have imagined would be afforded to you.
1: it is a very vulnerable experience and i think i was quite surprised at feeling this way because sort of the aspiration again was always obviously working towards a pamphlet and then eventually a full collection. I didn't think I'd be so lucky that things would come together so quickly um, because Ignition Press was dreamt up by Nal Monroe and at Oxford Brooks and they made the press happen, uh, you know, very quickly, really over the span of six, seven months um, and we were invited to submit and all of that. But um, yeah, to answer your question, I suppose it just feels like suddenly there is no place to hide you know people will be reading the pamphlet and knowing that this is your work and so it's not like you know you're in the poetry review and somehow other people's writing also gives yours legitimacy in a way or the editorial and the way it's framed it will give you a sense of you know i'm i'm amongst other writers and and i think the thing is also my mother has increasingly been able to <laughs> Um, I think translate some of my poems I don't know quite how she's doing it either my father is translating it for her or someone else and and she picks up these bits and bobs and it's interesting because I think now she's recognizing that my identity you know a large part of it is my writing and she's increasingly wanting to be in dialogue with me about why I wrote that or what have I actually written Uh, whereas in the past when it was you know a poem here and there that I'd submit that would be a very private thing, almost. And even if it, was, if it were, was published, my mom wouldn't know about it, and it wouldn't be sort of a, an event. You know, yeah. it would be. Yeah. And,
0: and and the act of being published right. drags you into the public view as well, doesn't it? Does, it? You know, there's yeah. so many pictures of you, and you're right. doing public readings, which yes. will yeah. hopefully I will have mentioned in the introduction. Um, <laughs> Thanks. But yeah, suddenly you're centre stage, aren't you? And mm. it doesn't naturally sit in my mind as an accompanying part of what it means to sit down and write a collection Mm. as honest or as seemingly honest as as you've done. I don't like to use the word honest around poetry Mm -hmm. because it doesn't seem relevant but as something that's trying to confront a lot of difficult issues Mm. around identity and self-identity and how that might affect your home life as a child. Yeah. That doesn't seem to sit naturally with then going on talking about it on podcasts or um, (laughs) on stages in front of strangers you know
1: you know I think it is a sort of an odd thing um there's a part of me that thinks you know I really value these opportunities you know being interviewed or being invited to speak because then you you get to I guess communicate your ideas in a different forum um for people who might not take the time to read the whole thing you actually get to share a few poems on stage and they'll listen to it. And it's a different experience listening to something than reading it. There's also this strong urge to hide, to say no, to say, I can't do this. Um, not particularly because I'm afraid of public speaking. I'm I'm sort of an ambivert, so I'm kind of okay with speaking in front of crowds. But it's more the sense of, especially the Q&As, you know, when people ask you questions, you feel very exposed. Or sometimes the questions are so loaded, you don't know where to begin. Um, for example, one thing that came up quite a lot and still does is, why don't you write in Chinese or will you write in Chinese? And it's not just a sense of, you know, local audiences expecting me as a Chinese person to write in Chinese, but my parents, my mother, would say, you know, you're you're bilingual and I can write in Chinese, so why English? You know, why not start writing in, in your own mother tongue? And that becomes very fraught for me, is precisely for the reasons I've talked about. Yeah. It's sort of like I'm I'm asked to choose or I'm asked why my allegiances are not the way people perceive it should be. For example,
0: so. this actually came up in conversation with Zena Hashembeck oh,
1: a lot about it? why oh, she yeah. she
0: gets this question constantly right, yeah. about um, mm. why not I love her write work, in by Arabic. the way, oh, I love her yeah. work, yeah. yeah. But why write in English when yeah you grew up with Arab speaking English, Arabic speaking so, Arabic, yeah, first language, right? There are a lot of overlaps between mm. the answers just coming up with that, yeah. I would be interested to see how those questions develop when you've now got a ready-made long-form answer as to (laughs) why you may have chosen to write in English. And I think it's, um, why do you think that question comes up?
1: So I think several things, right? So one thing is there aren't maybe that many ethnically Chinese or East Asian writers in England who are poets. Um, First and foremost, you know, Sarah Howe is definitely one of the most famous ones and she's a mentor of mine as well. But this assumption that, okay, so you clearly come from a bilingual background and you're an ESL speaker. I mean, almost like the question is sort of like, what made you put in that extra effort and what makes you want to have to fight to stay in this realm that's not naturally yours almost, you know, there's a, and also obviously there's a bit of sometimes a hint of slight like racism, casual racism, like you look Chinese, so you must be bilingual. So therefore you know, sort of question of almost why are you here, you know, because you must be from China. Um, And obviously that overlooks the British Chinese, overlooks so many communities who are, yeah, ethnically one thing, but they speak English and that's their only language. Um, And then the question asked by a Chinese person from Hong Kong is utterly different. It's like, almost like, well, we have a history of 5,000 years and we have all this literature and yes, Tang Dynasty poetry and all that that I grew up with why are you abandoning that for Shakespeare? It's almost like Tang poetry versus Shakespeare. And why do you think Shakespeare is better than us? So there's that implicit sense of yeah, yeah. why have you claimed another heritage? Um, and I, I think I'm trying to answer that through my poetry that, you know, my schooling was very particular and it wasn't like my parents sent me there for no reason because it was a very good school. And, and all the good schools in Hong Kong that are not international schools, it still remains the case that they are faith schools and they're all missionary schools um all established by the british during the colonial era and that's not a coincidence that you find a lot of students in these schools they have very good english it's true but also they don't they're conflicted in terms of their identity because of the way they've been taught
0: Mm. i think
1: yeah bit of a long answer No, no
0: no but it's um i'm glad that you spoke of both aspects as well because i think it's um it's easy in poetry and literature mm. in the southeast of England particularly mm. to only get that view of mm. come on we want to embrace other yeah languages yeah you know, we're, we're desperate for arts council funding so right. please yeah you know bring uh, in some uh, otherness yeah, 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 almost yeah yeah show us your otherness through your writing right. yeah. um but I suppose there's also a lot in your answer there that fed into ideas or feelings that may make a pamphlet of this nature or any pamphlet sorry Um, more exposing because Mm. then it brings up so many of these issues about well why if you're going to demand this space why are you then doing it in a second language and you know why are you not being true to yourself but the self that other people are imposing on you
1: exactly and then
0: this obviously feeds into notions
1: of the other yes and
0: um, what it is to find your queer voice Mm. we'll focus for the moment on how you mentioned about your mother now being more aware or not more aware of your writing but more able to access it yeah. and begin to translate it. Mm. I don't do this very often but I've, I've noted a lot of lines from the pamphlet because a lot of things mm. stood out to sure. me so we'll take these as starting points if yeah. you don't mind but um, this is from your poem practice I would mm. head back home with a deepening sense of dread my bruises fading to quiet. Mm. I'm just wondering what And this is not necessarily a direct question for you, but why do we as writers try and write about home in that way? Who are we trying to talk to in that? Are we trying to talk to the people we've left slash turned our backs on slash been pushed away from, you know, whatever's gone on in this idea of what home is? Mm -hmm. Are we trying to talk to them or are we trying to explain to our readership what that was like?
1: I mean, I think I read somewhere that, you know, someone's first pamphlet or collection is usually the most personal or apparently personal which is what Sharon Old says um because somehow that you know I think people rarely write their first thing as like a themed thing it's usually kind of stuff that you've been collecting over you know your almost your entire life or however long you've been writing, and then that coalesces into something seemingly unified because it's written by you. But usually, I think people's first things are the most fragmented, oddly, because there's no clear theme. I mean, if there's a theme, it might be family and queerness, but but even that is, is quite sort of you know broad. Why do I write these things? I mean, now that I'm, I'm looking at it, I'm sort of seeing what it is as a totality. I sort of do wonder who was I writing it for? I mean, first and foremost, it was probably just a way of processing things because that poem in particular is about fencing as a sport and i was a fencer for over a decade in school and the reason why i started writing this poem in particular is because i was speaking to natalie tetler um, of the complete works program just over coffee one day because i'm not i'm not part of the program but um she was asking me you know what do i enjoy doing and i thought that was a bit of an odd question because we were there supposedly to talk about poetry and i told her i used to be a fencer. Uh, and she was like, "Okay, you should write about that." And I was like, "No, there's nothing. There's nothing to write about, <laughs> because that's a sport that I did." And and then she was like, "No, no, go go back and think about it." And oddly, the poem came very quickly because I realized that, of uh, fencing was so laden with symbolism for me. I mean, the the way you camouflage yourself, the way, you know, you you fence based on your gender. You know, obviously it's very binary. So the women fencing team, the men fencing team. And obviously there were feelings there. There were people who were like me. I was exploring my queerness, but obviously not exploring. So I was hiding from it through all the gear you wear as a fencer. You don't see any patch of skin once you're suited up. And the, the kind of dueling that happens between the two fencers on the piste, it's almost a kind of relationship, a kind of... And so I was like, whoa, actually, this is very fruitful for what I'm trying to explore. So it wasn't almost logical. It was a sense of giving, being given permission to write about fencing as a sport and then i realized actually there was a lot there that i could explore
0: it's so. nice when uh people give you permission to write about things yeah. that you would consider banal
1: yes exactly I suppose, and this
0: feeds into a lot of the pressure to please tell us about the otherness right. in your practice exactly. and then to suddenly be told well not just write about that exactly. thing you did yeah just that hobby you had or that sport you were exactly. made to play at school because right. It's your life. And if it was yeah. a large enough part of your life, of course, all of these things will come out
1: exactly anyway.
0: Yeah. You know, but they'll hopefully come out in a way that you're more comfortable with, you know, right. because it's, you, it's your life, isn't it? You exactly. Know? Yeah.
1: I mean, there's a poem I haven't included in this pamphlet. I might include it in my later full collection, but um, it's called The Calligrapher. And for a while, I was to- sort of toying between writing about fencing and writing about calligraphy, because i practiced both for over a decade. And there's a sense of, well for a, maybe an idealized Western audience, they would be expecting the calligraphy poem. And by writing that calligraphy poem, it also satisfies something in terms of what my parents expected of me, which is to portray a certain kind of chinese to the world. And then I was like, well, you know, actually I wrote that poem and I still am quite pleased with it. But the fencing poems were the ones that really came very organically because it almost subverts both expectations. Like maybe a Western audience wasn't expecting that you'd be You'd be a Chinese fencer. Maybe that's I just less love the common.
0: universality of that yeah, time as well. Exactly, you know, that whole yeah. thing of being at school and sort of fancying someone, right. But showing it through stabbing them a little right. bit, you know? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Chasing exactly. them around a sports right. or a sort of fake sword. You yeah, know, that is, yeah. That's just what right obsessive love yeah. is at that right. age, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, I'm sort of guessing. What age were you? Because I was sort of guessing. Was, well, this is it, like teenage, yeah, like yeah. sort so of that high school. Was, that was what yeah. I was yeah, yeah. But I just wanted to check. Or not
1: even. Knowing that that was love or desire because it was so forbidden.
0: Just trying to think about. Well, I think obviously there's a, a different aspect of it of um, the queerness and sure. a, a different element to it. Mm. But I think a lot of love at that age or obsession that sort of obsessive lust mm. for someone feels forbidden because you don't feel able to act on it. Yeah. Either way, if you're yeah. if you're a, a right. young teenager, exactly. Say. I mean, and I yeah. think that's what really came through in that poem is right. it's, it's not it felt like you were writing just about the act and those things came out of it naturally rather than trying to write sometimes it feels like a pressure on especially queer writers to try and write about the queerness in a different yeah. way you right. know right it, exactly. it didn't feel like that was happening thank you, know? you. Yeah.
1: yeah thanks yeah it was you know an organic very organic process so so that surprised me and yeah. in, in how the two dovetailed so yeah. well
0: And the images Um, of the blooming bruises as well, I just thought were amazing, especially when it's implied that the bruises are blooming beneath the costume Mm -hmm. and unseen and Mm -hmm. all of this that's happening beneath the surface, Mm. which is there's a lot of stuff happening beneath the surface in the pamphlet. I think we might take a second poem.
1: Dragon Hill Spa, Seoul, South Korea It is the year 2016, but you know how women tame their own bodies into bones, dig their own graves in daylight. Here, for once, in a hot bath of rainbows, the bodies let themselves go, the water holds them up to the light, the lips murmur a prayer to skin. Here, the only hands that touch their wrists are their own. Here is no man's land. Here, the names of soldiers, heavy-handed, are forgotten. Here, no one takes what they want from the women, whose gods are freely chosen, whose bones are theirs to bury.
0: Thank you very much. I mean, we can't go too much further in the conversation without talking about your mother, can mm-hmm. we? Sure. So let's, uh, now we've got had a bit of a chat. I'm going to try and frame this in a more sort of I don't want to focus too much on your personal relationship because Mm. that's not necessarily what we're here for and I I think if people read the pamphlet, they'll get enough out of it and Mm. I don't think the purpose of this conversation is really about digging into into those things because I do think the poems speak for themselves clearly enough. Mm. But I think as writers in general, this idea of like your mother Mm. and this sort of shroud-like image that comes through, this idea of something being... There's a duality mm. to your mother in these poems and, they, and, and she seems both oppressive yet detached and they're con- like a constant but also distant mm. and that seems clear through poems that are set while you've been in London mm. but, but also while you've been at home as well. Mm. I'm just wondering why do we obsessively write about these things that we're seemingly trying to escape? And I, I'm worried about framing that question because I'm not trying to suggest that you're trying to escape your mother sure. through these poems. but sure. there's a feeling there, isn't there, which is mm. quite common for a lot of people's writing, mm. in that
1: Yeah, it is very interesting. I think you could look at it from a slightly maybe psychoanalytic point of view that the, mother, the mother-child relationship is always, you know, a very fraught one. It's one of the most important ones, right? Like, um, I think, what was it, that D.W. Winnicott said, like, you know, before you realise that there's a mirror, the child sees, like, the mirror as the mother's face, you know, because that's the first object you attach yourself to. I'm probably butchering this a little bit, but, um, so I'm interested in that relationship, that intensity. Um, And, you know, when you talk to queer youth in general, it doesn't really matter what culture you're from. The fear with coming out is always to do with, or often to do with, the fear of disappointing your parents. And usually it's the mother. It's, It's, you know, you can see, like, just any, any person talking about that. And it's somehow it's always fraught. It doesn't really matter what gender you are, or where you're from, the sense of, I can't tell my mother. And I I think I'm curious about that as well, like why we, you know, feel that sense of loyalty, the sense of, I can't betray her because by being myself, and also there's an actual act of departure, right? We all grow up and we all leave. And because the mother is usually the person, obviously, it's different in a, you know, queer relationship, you might have two fathers instead, but, you know, growing up in the, family that I did my mom was a quintessential I suppose housewife Um, we spent so much time together while my father was he's a doctor so he was out working Um, and that that bond to me felt always felt so intense so I think when you picked up on that sense of my mother was everywhere she was you know and she she still is that I almost say things like oh this is my you know my mother's room and then my partner would be like no it's your parents room you know what where's your dad or this is my mother's something, something, but actually it's my parents. Um, and my father feels like he, not that he's not there, it's just that he doesn't have that same emotional impact on me in terms of seeing him everywhere. And then maybe going back to poetry, it's this sense of, I want to write about my mother because there's a lot that I couldn't say for many years. And, and that I just, I, I turn to writing as a, as a way of comforting myself, a way of figuring things out a way of almost apologizing, uh, a way of almost writing this unseen letter to my mother, explaining everything to her so that one day she might understand, you know, as a way of setting myself up for something that eventual coming out. Or um, a lot of these poems are from prior to coming out or, you know, the seeds of those poems. So, yeah, maybe it's a way to, to justify myself, to explain myself. And also, I mean, this is one thing I haven't really talked about in any interview so far, that my mother, her first job in Hong Kong was a, a writing job. She was a scriptwriter for a local television station. So my mother's actually an amazing writer in Chinese. Um, and she's now currently writing actually a, a drama script, you know, uh, potentially might be made into a, a play on stage, but obviously very casually and sort of a, as an amateur writer because she's not in a you know, writing profession, but... Knowing that my mother wrote for a few years, and that was what sustained her. I suppose that was all a weird kind of full coming full circle. That does she, that feed
0: into writing in English as well? In that it gives you a distance from your mother's writing career. Maybe, itself, yeah. Because of her being accomplished.
1: Maybe subconsciously yeah. that is a thing of charting out my own space. Yeah. But certainly, I know that you know my mom always encouraged me to read, and oddly would buy me English books. Mm. And you'd think, how would that work? Because she wouldn't know what was on the jacket cover. But she would buy me these English books because she liked the cover, like the cover art, for example. But that act of trying to so generously introduce me to another language as well is, to me, quite fraught and quite poignant. That Mm. she almost, yeah, she could have just bought me Chinese books. But she also bought me English books, which is what is interesting, I think. Um, Yeah.
0: I suppose that that sort of comes back to this idea of when we are talking about this uh, perceived impression that writers are trying to reinvent themselves mm. it's interesting that we use poetry as a way of uh, reinventing others mm. in our life isn't it yeah, you know and the point to fantasy mother sorry what's the title oh remember.
1: conversation with fantasy conversation mother. with fantasy
0: yeah. mother um mm. does that very well doesn't it? in which you write to a person that is freely listening to you in a way that you might want to have and I think that comes up a lot this is playing on my mind a lot I I chatted to Caroline Bird about it in the most recent episode not specifically about relationships to parents but Mm. more confronting yeah ideas around shame and guilt in poetry Mm. wherever they come from Mm -hmm. but this is also feeding into I have a lot to write about my own relationship with my mother, and I never have and I have never as yet been able unable to Mm -hmm. and it Left me quite emotional after le- reading some of the poems in your book because you've done some of the things I wish I could do myself and still feel unable to do. Mm. But it may also be clouding a lot of the way I'm asking the questions and maybe making them slightly a bit too more too sure. too personal. But yeah,
1: no, it's fine. I, mean, I was just thinking also, you know, some of these poems, I do use the mother figure as a trope as well. You know, so. It doesn't necessarily have to be my mother and some of the things I include in here she has never said so I think because um, I got quite bogged down over a few poems you know a few months ago probably when somehow I fell into this trap of thinking well what was the actual truth you know what did she actually say or not say and then realizing through my you know current supervision I'm a PhD candidate as well and I was work. I work with Joe Shapcott, and she's an amazing Mm. you know mentor and poet and she was like, Mary Jean, remember? You know, poetry is also an act of creation. Yeah. Um, it's it's like fiction. You you have the permission and the right to invent and to imagine. So once I sort of let go of that ostensible need to write documentary truth, then I think a lot of the poems came up. You know, the fantasy mother poem came up because for me that could be um, a poem written about any mother. You know, it really is just about the universality of, of queerness. Well, and I, th-
0: I think that's perhaps why yeah. this pamphlet. Not definitely mm. why this pamphlet feels so complete is because mm. it talks of these things in, in a very universal way right. it it doesn't feel too much like a diary mm. which it perhaps can do if you're to, if you're trying to document right the truth or what really happened yeah. and for the listeners benefit I'm doing air quotes sure. at the moment <laughs> there's something that I haven't managed to free myself mm. from when talking about that and it may be that I'm finding it too difficult to move away from the truth in it, mm. whatever that means. Because I completely agree the truth isn't that relevant mm. in terms of trying to communicate a feeling. Right. Or the truth around events. Yeah. And what people have said. As long as you're not libeling people and right. uh, coming out and making complete falsehoods up. I think you exactly.
1: yeah.
0: you do need elements of fiction in your mm. writing, don't you, to make yeah. it um, relatable to, to right. readers.
1: And also, you know, not not just to kind of forcibly make it a kind of a universal piece because obviously specificity is, is so important and, and I can only really write from my own experience. But um I've increasingly realized that, you know, sometimes poetry is about hope as well. It's about what you hoped could have happened. It's about sort of your vision for maybe a better world or a more compassionate world. So sometimes, you know, people who do magical realism, for example, or the surrealist art, you know, they, that kind of freedom to just sort of imagine a scenario. Um, And to convey something through that. I think, you know, artists have been doing it for ages and and fiction writers as well. So for me, I think poets, um, for example, Sophie Collins, she had her recent um, debut collection from Faber. There were a lot of moments of, you know, I was wondering, did this really happen? But that's precisely what she's trying to subvert the idea that the eye is not meant to be a documentary eye, that all these, especially women who write about themselves, it's it's automatically taken as this is your intimate document of your life, whereas men can write fiction, you know, I think all of that is in the background as well. But obviously, for me, it's even more layered, because um, it's not just about, I suppose, white men, white women, and I'm, I'm also queer. And, and, and there's all of those other layers added on that. But I, I'm not sort of naive enough to think that, Obviously, because I'm a woman and I'm writing about my mother, it's all too easy to, so for people to say, this is, this is the document of your life and your mother and um, all of this is true. And, and maybe because that is easily perceived as such, my mother can feel conflicted and, and betrayed and, and that's stuff I'm, I'm currently dealing with. But yeah, I still feel like in order to write at all, I need to free myself from those constraints.
0: So my dad's mum died when I was 16? Yeah. and she was notorious for telling stories where the things she was telling you she said that she didn't say them yeah but she wasn't you wouldn't class what she was saying as a lie right. they were just embellishments yeah. in order to get a point right. across and i've always found uh, my the way i write to be closer to the way people tell stories in pubs mm. and mm-hmm. that that idea of when you walk away from not an argument or maybe just a confrontation mm. with someone you don't really know and you've been a bit surprised by it and you come away and you're like, this is what I should have said. I right. should have bloody said this. Yeah. And that's what I feel poems are. They're in right. the moment where you are able to be clearer about yes. things and that right. will involve yeah. embellishing right. what's happened or adding details.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think poetry, you know, this is this is my work, so obviously I can't be divorced from it. But it's also a thing that once I think someone's written something, then it's out in the world. It's its own entity um, and so as much as you can take responsibility for it, you also need to sort of let it go, and, and it needs to do whatever it does, you know, in relationship to another reader. I think that is that is the work that I think poetry does. That You know, I've read poets from around the world, across cultures, and for those poets' work to speak to me, for example, Adrienne Rich is always the pe- the person I speak about who really opened up poetry for me. And, you know, she was writing in the 1960s, uh, white lesbian feminist in, you know, America, I'm, you know, I couldn't be more culturally she's Jewish as well. I couldn't be more culturally different from her. But her voice spoke to me and it it was something that, you know, I slept I I had her books beside me when I slept on on the bedside table and and that for that to happen it's just something about language. It just it transcends a lot of these things we think are immutable and and I think the work she did for my life and on my life is just something that maybe I hope that my writing will do for another person and it's yeah, you just sort of have to let it go, um, and I can't define what it might do or might not do, if that makes sense. It's yeah.
0: so odd, isn't it? Imagining yeah. that something you've made may have that effect on that is someone, hope, isn't it? I I think. Mean, but it's yeah. really beautiful, isn't it? Right. Actually, that, yeah. that that leads really nicely into something that I wanted to ask about. Actually, without breaking the flow of this too much, my sibling Tegan mm-hmm. is sort of uh, doing some work experience. I'm nineteen years older than, than Tegan, and I, and this idea that They are doing work experience for me. It's making me feel incredibly old. (laughs) But as part of the work experience, I asked Egan to come up with some draft questions Mm. for you based on your pamphlet, and then I just did some feedback, and it wasn't the intention that the questions would come into the programme unless they were relevant, and this one is relevant. Mm -hmm. And it centres around... The original question centred around the mental health of queer people Mm. specifically. Mm. It sort of opened up into this idea of... um, how as a writer do you use your position as either an emerging or established writer to reassure readers who don't have a voice that there is someone that is experiencing the same thing?
1: Let's put it this way. I think, you know, when someone starts writing, and it's certainly the kind of the mentality I had when writing all these poems, it wasn't the sense of, wow, I'm, I'm going to create a, a document that's going to save someone's life. But because so many other writers have done that for me, I literally sometimes I, I think books shore me up. You know, I, I when I'm feeling anxious or I'm worried or just kind of frazzled, I go into a bookstore, uh, or go into a library. Basically, being surrounded by books, I feel safe. You know, because there's a sense of these documents accepting me. These these breathing things are, you know, sensibilities that will accept me for who I am. Um, and maybe the hope is that, you know, I can only really write from what I know and what I believe in, but then increasingly now, yeah, there are people who are, you know, queer and Asian and they either message me on Twitter or they talk to me in person and they say, Oh, you know, your work is important to me or you've your poetry really touches me. And obviously there's a sense of almost surprise or because you're not prepared for that. You you don't have As much as people talk about readership you really don't have a readership in mind when you write i think i think that's a false sense you know if you're thinking too much of your readership you really it's going to cause a writer's block um but i am touched and in those moments i almost yeah i feel like if that's what my work is doing then then i might be on the right path you know but at the same time because i'm still struggling with my own you know i suppose sense of shame um over being queer let alone being a you know a queer mouthpiece there's always a sense of oh gosh like what am I doing you know I'm I'm really putting myself out there now and I'm really maybe going against what some of the things that my parents would probably you know they'd be content for me to write poetry but not to speak about being queer maybe maybe that's one step too far but you know it's all part of the same thing and I think if I stopped speaking about being queer that would also be false and that would that would not make sense like it's just and having observed how poets act and behave and it's sort of, they do become, yeah, they become sort of touchstones for other people. You know, like when people ask me who are my favorite poets or they are just so many because they all do something different for me. Um, you know, Sarah, for example, Sarah Howe, she gave me permission to write about Hong Kong. Um, you have Emily Berry, who gave me permission to write about my mother, um, just in the ways they do it. You know, it's not just thematic. It's, it's sort of the ways they're able to access that material is so new and so special that I was like, wow, I didn't know you could do that. Um, with such an old theme, for example, and then obviously aging rich about writing about you know female relationships. Again, I, I had no idea you could write a love poem like that. You know, um, her twenty one love poems. Um, so, so I suppose just if one day my work becomes that for for someone, that's perfect.
0: Having spent time in psychiatric units and my own mental. Illness being prevalent through my whole life and those of loved ones. Mm. And, and it really annoys me when it, people miss the point that these individual stories and these stories from other backgrounds and other experiences are not merely an attempt at diversity. Yeah. They're an, actually yeah. an attempt to communicate with people in a way that they may relate to. Yeah. And it makes me f- furious. I'm going to try not to talk about this too much. but this this misunderstanding that that access to this kind of writing, um, the kind of writing we've just been talking about, yes. whether it's the different aspects like you're talking about one writer may give you permission to write about Hong Kong, another about your mother, and in the various ways, and then the queer writers that you enjoy as well. But that idea that access to literature that isn't does doesn't sit within and I'm gonna do air quotes again because I hate using this word, that doesn't sit within the norm mm-hmm. of what is the established canon over here. Yeah is merely an attempt at diversity right. when that isn't what people are asking for they're not asking necessarily for a diverse canon what they're asking for is representation isn't it and and ac- access for people and like you're saying this this the word you before this it is not an over exaggeration to suggest that this may be a lifeline to someone right. and i'm not putting the weight on your work specifically sure. I'm, yeah. this could be any any yeah. writer that talks about right. any experience but Definitely. Th- th- you know it's not An exaggeration to suggest it may be a lifeline to a young person or any age,
1: is it? I think you know it's very interesting that you brought that up. The notion of diversity, because obviously I'm very conscious of the landscape now, increasingly, um, and being a part of different schemes like the Ledbury Emerging Critics Scheme, again spearheaded by you know Sarah and Sandeep Parmar. You know, you sometimes do feel very small because you think, wow, these are the statistics. You know, the odds are stacked against people who are not white. and obviously you can you can go down the list not queer not disabled for example um you know that's the norm and then everyone else who is all these multiple identities becomes it's almost like well writing is overwhelmingly white and the establishment is as well when you go into publishing and but i've been very fortunate because i think i've had mentors who've been able to help me i suppose realize the odds but also try to not be weighed down by that too much so my agent for example Emma Patterson is Um, she's mixed race you know and she is very able to talk to me about these issues of being a writer of colour being an agent of colour and how do you resist being exotified or exotifying yourself but also trying to tell the story of who you are you know we even have these debates about whether or not you should ever mention rice in a poem And you have poets who fall completely on different sides. You know, you've got people saying, never, ever mention mango or rice because you're giving people an excuse to exotify you. But then I think, I do eat rice all the time. So it's not about, you know, we would never put that much pressure on someone's piece of bread because that's what they eat every morning. But because we're writers in a world that's not equal, our bowl of rice gets so laden with symbolism that sometimes I still do include tea in rice, even though I know that's like a label but because I drink green tea all the time and I eat rice every day. Like that is the truth for me as a person of colour. It'd be fake to put in spaghetti and bread because even though I eat it as well, that's not for me something I want to write about. Um, yeah, so it's a long story short. I think you're very right to pick up on that token diversity that we're supposed to perform as writers of colour, but I definitely want to resist that. And I don't know if I'm succeeding, but you know, that's something I think about as well in my yeah, I Yeah, I,
0: I th- but I think what annoys me further in that is that it shouldn't be left to the poets themselves to because this this is where i think as an industry we're falling into the realms of purely diversity for diversity's sake because you have a lot of well-intentioned and well-meaning mm-hmm. producers mm-hmm. and a lot of writers of color are getting some fantastic opportunities mainly still in the southeast which is mm-hmm. needs to be sorted out and needs to be more nationwide mm-hmm. and more representative of what the uk is but yeah I think there are too many people who are being protective about their own jobs in the the slightly higher tiers of the publishers and editors. I think because until you have those roles filled more representationally, you're still going to get writers that feel like they're being exotified or the aspects of their writing. I spoke to this... this uh, it, no, it is, it is relatable, but I spoke to Byron Vincent about this. We both have similar backgrounds in the with mental health problems and the working class background, and how that then feels to how you go from a, a very heavy working class background to then go into poetry. Right. Which is like, you know, and then the conflict between yeah. the, the, how you've grown up and, and then this field you're trying to move into, right. and the pressure on you as a working class writer to be miserable. Mm hmm. You right. know, there has to be pain yeah. in your work that has yeah, there has to be trauma yeah. and yeah. because people that haven't been through through those experiences only understand the attraction of the trauma in yes. your work.
1: Right.
0: And it may not, not be any trauma, you know. Right. I mean there there has been trauma in my life, sure. but it's not it isn't because I'm working class, it's yes. because
1: of bipolar,
0: other uh, things. Bipolar, yeah. and right. um, I've not faced I hadn't faced up to that early enough. And I tried to hide from that. Mm. That's where the trauma came from. And I, and I should be free to choose that, yes. you know. And yep. and until you have people in positions... I mean, Kip, Kip Duol is doing some yes, amazing, amazing work yeah. for writers of colour right. and there's a big overlap with working class yes. stuff that she's doing at the moment. Mm. And this, I'm really excited for this Unbound Common yes. People anthology that's going to come out soon. Mm. Um, and there is work happening there, but it still feels so slow, doesn't it? Like... Mm. Um,
1: it takes, I think you're right, and precisely you pointed out the fact that, you know, whether you have writers of colour, that's the start, but then you need also people who, you know, are in the sort of business of publishing and all of that, who will look at your story and, and understand that the point of it is precisely your complexity and not your skin colour. I mean, even though we want to value writers of colour, we, I'm not, you know, we shouldn't be in the business of valuing each other because of, a certain type of skin color and and that's who you are clearly it's that we want more human stories across the board yeah if you're a writer of color who wants to be ex- uh, um, accepted accepted by the establishment you need to perform your identity you need to you know be a certain way so that we can package you and market you and sort of draw certain audiences and it also has to do with the capitalist framework of buying and selling books and and I'm also increasingly aware that so there's this, well, I think it's very apparent to people who don't live in this, the metropolis of of sort of the colonial empire, colonial empire. But for example, in Hong Kong, I think if you write in English, right, and you publish in Hong Kong, which does happen, you you just you do know that the legitimacy you get from that is not as much as where you published in the states or in the UK, and then you're almost like your work is repatriated, you know? So so you can go back and then and then say, look, I've been yeah, I've been legitimized by the establishment. That is not here. That is not home. And I'm going to bring that work back and then people will read you. And that—that that is how it works because it, it's its capitalism. It's also politics. It's also history. I think a lot of um, post-colonial writers face that same issue. You know, they're actually from India, but Oxford Uni- University Press needs to publish it in London before it can be brought back home to India and celebrated. and And there's a reason why I'm here in London. There's a reason why so many writers from other parts of the world come to these centers, because there's also a sense of like, there is no other way you can really make something viable. And also, I mean, obviously, I left for other reasons. It's not just I needed to come to the center of empire or something. It's just also the understanding that I would get better training here. Obviously, you could meet poets in person that you've read for your GCSEs, you know, were, which not, would not happen were you back home. But that's a reality. And I think people need to talk about that. The complexities of publishing and the power relations that occurs
0: i think Um, it's one of the reasons i had such a good time recently at the poetry mm -hmm. festival is there's just that shift of power from i mean i'm from london i was born in westminster you know i couldn't be any more central right and i do love this city yeah we're in london now i I love where we are and i Mm -hmm. love the city but it doesn't sit very well with me that i mean even just in the uk you can't Mm -hmm. have this huge imbalance where Poets from Yorkshire or Derbyshire right. or Cumbria feeling that they have to move to London in yeah. order to have a career. Sure. That isn't right. And mm. I think having that shift of control and yeah. saying, or that's the thing, and I, I think certain people do need to just stand up and take it because Verve hasn't happened because the Poetry Society has decided that they wanted something to happen in the region. So mm. That isn't what happened. Mm. A couple of people got bored of the fact they had to keep going to London and thought, well, we'll start something, you know. Mm. Um, unfortunately, not everyone feels like that. It's in their power yeah. to start something like that. Right. But, and this is what we're saying, like I think as a young writer now, if you're, as an emergent, I don't mean young, I mean emerging sure, writer, yeah. no matter of your identity, I think people are still f- are starting to feel more confident about getting published. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean you necessarily got control over your work, does it?
1: No, no. I mean, so much of it is contingent on, I think it's contingent on privilege, uh, all sorts, right? Institutional privilege, economic privilege, social privilege, um, you know, A lot of reasons why I think I've got to where I have is because, you know, I have a tremendous amount of institutional privilege. I think I've been to quite a few universities where those networks allowed me to then, you know, get things published or or work in. You know, I was part of the Oxford University Poetry Society. You know, there you met people where you otherwise wouldn't have met, for example, who are active in the literary world. Despite being a you know queer woman of color, I'm Chinese and I'm not. Naive enough to think that that doesn't matter, you know, because even though we talk about BAME, BAME, or, you know, people of color, obviously there are different, you know, realities. And I'm from Hong Kong, grew up, born and raised there, and I left when I was 19. So I did grow up for a significant part of my life not feeling like I was a minority. I was a majority in Hong Kong. Um, I think that has an impact, you know, we're talking about mental health, all that has an impact on your psyche. Like I didn't grow up. Asian American or British Chinese and feeling all the all the time that I was invisible. I was clearly visible. Um, apart from being a woman, I wasn't out. So I was a straight woman ostensibly, and that gives you quite a lot of a uh, straight Chinese woman gives you a lot of power, you know, because obviously not in relation to Chinese men, but you see what I mean. Like mm. it's sort of then coming to the States and, and then coming to the UK and realizing that I was a part of a minority. That actually took a, a mind shift. Like initially, when people kept telling me to come to women of color meetings when I was in the u s doing my undergraduate studies, I, I thought they'd they'd gotten it wrong. I was like, I'm not a woman of color. like you've gotten you mean maybe um Asian American, you know, And they're like, no, no, but you you're you are a woman of color and obviously eventually realized a lot of different things. I'm a queer woman of mm-hmm. color. Um, but yeah, so so the the mental health aspect that you were alluding to earlier, I think i have a lot of things to deal with in terms of like shame in relation to being queer and all of that but i don't i don't suffer from as much i think from the sense of um i'm a racial minority and there's so much to compensate for that interesting
0: there's a lot of overlaps here between when i had a conversation with Andre simons Mm -hmm. who's from bermuda originally Mm -hmm. and he he in his words wasn't black until he came to london yeah you know, yep. it wasn't the thing. You know, right. He just grew up on an island yeah. where he was in the majority. Right. And in, in his mind, his creative practice revolved around, and this, these are his words, with being a fat gay man.
1: Right. That was mm. what interesting set
0: yeah. him apart as a young man and right. growing up, and that's what right. informed his identity. Being mm. black wasn't, a,
1: right. wasn't
0: even a consideration for yeah. him until he, I think he moved to, uh, did he move to? He may have lived somewhere else prior mm. to living in London, but then mm. when he came to, to the UK then mm. to suddenly be identified and exoticised in the yeah. London gay community right. as being mm-hmm. a Caribbean black Caribbean man, mm. you know. Yeah. But this idea of shame, I think we're going to finish on this question because it's nice, you know, it's poetry. We don't want to finish on a, on a
1: high. <laughs> on a high, yes.
0: <laughs> no, I was just wondering, because this comes up a lot with a lot of people, but is... Poetry the right place to be confronting shame? Mm, or is it just a place to dwell?
1: Well, okay, so I suppose to answer that question, I'll, I'll just refer to one of my favorite writers, Jeanette Winterson, who's a, a novelist, um, a lesbian. A lot of people know her for her first book, Oranges Are Not the Only Fruit. And she actually, I, I heard I've heard her live. So at an event, she was asked, sort of, you know, is literature basically something that traumatizes people, because you have a high correlation between, you know, artists and suicide and all of that. And I think what she said was that, you know, literature is always on the side of health. It is always a means um, to live better, you know. And and the reason why we maybe find a lot of trauma being written about, it's not that that helps us stay in that place. I really don't believe it. I think we write through things, Um I think that you know there might be tears shed, there might be realizations, there might be feelings of shame, but really it is much better to be conscious of them than to have them stuck inside you. Because um, you know I believe in psychotherapy, for example, and and that is all about bringing unconscious things into your consciousness, and then you can make different choices about your life. And I think poetry has helped me make so many different choices that I would not have otherwise had the courage to make. You know, as a reader and then now as a writer, I've been able to write through shame. Um, you know, right through trauma, right through, yeah, all these different aspects of my life and, and to have a, a much clearer sense of where I am and and who I am um, in relation to other people as well. Um, and obviously poetry is this sort of invisible community because I think I read so many poets of colour, writers of colour, poets in translation, and you just feel you've got so many friends, so many mentors, invisible mentors around the world. You know, I can go anywhere in the world and I can bring my Adrian Rich, I can bring my, you know, Emily Berry, I can bring my uh, Mona Arshi, can... and then they will be with me, confronting whatever I'm confronting in my life. I think that that for me is why poetry is, is always about health rather than shame or illness.
0: Damn um, it, you've made me finish on a high. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think we're running out of time, so we'll finish with a poem, please, Mary
1: Jean. Okay, great, thanks. So I'll end with this poem that ends the entire pamphlet tea ceremony. There are days when I pretend to understand my mother's grief, as I coax her into sitting at the table for a tea ceremony, so she might linger on the rush of green into glass, how the scent of leaf dissolves both past and future in one gulp. We drink in a serene silence. My mother smiles a smile that breaks my breath into laughter. She is radiant now, Lost in the kettle's repetitive chant, her gaze fixed on the dance of fingers between utensils. I love my mother's joy, her reprieve from the sorrow of red-guarded nights. Time is a wound she adorns with designer clothing and too many sleeping pills. I tell her, go to bed. She says, I can't. Can you stay? As a child, I dreaded her desperate need. My hand resting on her forehead, unable to let go. Even now, with Freud and Jung as bedside reading, I can only invite her to the table. Look, mother, your hands are beautiful. Look, mother, our tea is ready.
0: You have one of my favourite reading voices. And I'm really Thank glad you. that the snow didn't keep us apart this weekend Yay. and we've been able to record this interview. Thank in- you so interview. much.
1: It was so nice to speak. Thank yeah. you for joining me.
0: Thank you. Hello. You stuck around. If you want to hear more, you can catch Mary Jean reading at the various launch events for CarConnect. New Poetry 7, such as The Crypt on the Green in London, April 30th, or All Souls College, Oxford, May 4th. I'm not going to list too many dates as I'm recording this intro far too early in April. As mentioned before, Lizzie and I are off to Berlin tomorrow. The best thing to do is go over to wwwmaryjeanchancom forward slash appearances for a full list of reading dates. Do go and check out Mary Jean Reading. She is fantastic. And I don't normally use this series for self-promotion, but I'm going to slightly bend my own self-imposed rules on this occasion. I'm very happy to say that I have some writing coming out in the first of a new series of pamphlets entitled Cities, published by Dostoevsky Wannabe. The first of this series is based in Bristol and will feature work by myself, Sarah Scotthorn, Vic Shirley, Clive Burney, Paul Hawkins, who is editing the Bristol pamphlet, and most excitingly, my wife, Lizzie, who is also the editor of our accompanying podcast at Pime the Week. If you want to come and see us all read our work, then get along to Rough Trade in Bristol on Saturday, April twenty eighth at two thirty. And with that being plenty of blowing my own trumpet, next up is a conversation with Sandy K. Palmer, which I mentioned before was recorded live at this year's Verve Poetry Festival in Birmingham. We met up on the world's tiniest festival stage to chat about how poems change over time and how our relationship to them may change in the time it takes to write, edit, publish and then finally launch a collection of writing. We touch on whether poems are always retrospective or if they can ever live in the moment and what role live literature events play in the development of Sandeep's writing. At the beginning, I wrongly introduced Sandeep as a senior lecturer at the University of Liverpool. She is in fact a professor there. If you are the kind of person that likes to write reviews on iTunes, then why not write one for us? We've already had some fantastic reviews left by our lovely listeners, which you can see over in the feedback section on our website, or indeed over iTunes. Here's Sandy. Hello, Bev. How you doing? Give us some noise, come on. It's really good. I was gonna make a rule at the beginning. no normal poetry audience nonsense, by which I mean make loads of noise, but further instilling that excitement in you anyway. I am now joined by Sandeep Palmer. Hello, Sandeep. How are you doing? Sandeep is a poet, critic, and senior lecturer in English at the University of Liverpool. She has published two collections of poetry, the first of which I think we're going to hear from in a moment, The Marble Orchard, and the second, I don't know how to pronounce that. *Idolon*. Eidolon. Eidolon which won the Ledbury Forte Prize for Best Second Collection. We're going to start with a reading.
2: So I'm going to read um, the first poem from my first collection, The Marble Orchard, uh, and it's called Invocation. To be of use, but nothing will decant. Perilous consonant, seized as jewel, betrothed as fire is to the ordinary, a spell, a note combatant of will and engraver of size, poultice to the hush, to the whispers of women in corded rooms and to the glows beneath doorways, purchaser of anointments, slatherer of knives and spoons, rind of merciless ends and clothier of borrowed aliases, trenchant penurist, hoarder of silvered lakes, post-chaise bending on the whim of royal deliverance, Coin to whom there is no weight to match the fruit of emptied forest. Animal to cistern, face to coda. God to neither me, to neither them, to she. To whom one is infinitely married and yet cannot be affixed. Enter. All that spills over from my able palm is you.
0: Thank you very much, Sandy. Trenchant (laughs) penurist. Are we doing that phrase?
2: Um, yeah, it's a really good question. I'm not entirely sure what that means, especially since it's been many years since I wrote it. But I think that's really good, and it kind of that idea. It was something that James Brooks was just talking about in the last panel, that um, sometimes language just comes to us, and it doesn't even necessarily communicate something to us beyond just sort of the idea um of the sound or some kind of association so i'm not actually able to define that
0: when was this collection published um
2: 2011 2011
0: so it's been seven seven years yeah and then add on however many years since you wrote the poems yeah but it must be strange then revisiting it does it take on a new meaning for you when you come and read live
2: i think so i think for this first collection as well it was an accumulation of many years of work Um, and definitely the poems that I wrote quite early on in that, probably the oldest poem is from the late 90s, so I was certainly a different person um, to the poems that I wrote at the end, and I guess that kind of event of the lyric or the, the poem is something that unless you can kind of climb back into it, you don't really remember what it is that it means, so mm-hmm. when you revisit that, it seems like a remote person in a remote country. Yeah. yeah.
0: It, it's something that comes up a lot in the series, talking to other poets, because it's such a Drawn out process, often releasing a collection. You know, th- 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 years spent just writing the poems, and then the editing process starts, and then actually putting the book together. You can. Some- I'm not accusing you of this at all, because you've <laughs> come in uh, re- rejuvenated. But you can see often that poets are maybe a little bit jaded with what they're coming back to, because it's been such an exhaustive process. Is it nice to now come back and have this gap and revisit older stuff, or is it still ridden with angst inside of you? <laughs>
2: I think in some ways it's it's more pleasurable to read from this book than it is perhaps to read from the collection that I'm going to be reading from tonight, which is the, the kind of the, the one that, uh, you know, won a prize and I'm seeming to have to read from quite a lot now. Um, this is the kind of non-prize winning, the book that nobody read. So it feels kind of like I'm doing some sort of service by reading those poems. But no, I, I suppose, I think probably for any poet, the experience of reading from a book is a kind of state of being from which you are not no longer in, and the work that you're producing in the moment is always going to be the most exciting to you. Sometimes that takes a long time, sometimes you don't kind of feel comfortable enough to be able to read from those poems. But um, yeah, I'm already well um, ahead of both of these books and, and reluctant to read from them, actually. Yeah.
0: Can a poem ever be reflective of a moment you're in? Or is it always looking back at something?
2: Well, I mean, when we talk about the lyric um, sort of in in a traditional way, the lyric form tends to be a kind of uh, presence that is always slightly looking backwards. So that present moment that is always receding into the past and taking versions of us with it. I think it's still the moment of writing and the moment of whatever it is that drives you to put those words down on the page is a kind of moment in itself. So there are kind of two moments really, or three moments that are being balanced by the poem at the same time. So you can kind of try to remember why it is that you wrote it. You may not be able to conjure the state that it refers to necessarily, or in fact, the state that that moment refers to tangentially as well.
0: But we're not saying that all poems are memories, are we? No, They're not not an act of remembering, are they?
2: Um, I think in the really traditional sense, poems can be, but those are not the poems that I'm especially interested Mm. in writing. Although having said that, I'm probably going to read another poem that's very much like Along Those Lines. No, I mean, now I suppose the difference between this book and my second book is that I uh, discovered lots of modernist women writers who formed the basis of my scholarly research. Um, And so I think now more about how to shape language, how language shapes us in the process, a much more kind of uh, language or experimental poem-inspired kind of practice. So no, I, I really detest that kind of intimate, uh, supposedly, artific- or supposedly genuine, but actually quite artificial space that the lyric creates. Um, and I avoid it as much as I can. And I find it really aggravating to read it in others as well, that I try to be polite about it.
0: And this sh- shaping of language, how, what role do live readings and events like the Poetry Festival play in helping you shape language?
2: I mean, I suppose in a way, even if you're the kind of poet who is doing process driven work, um, where you're really trying to exclude the I or the lyric speaker or the poet's voice, whatever that means, um, no matter how you fit into um, sort of style and method and technique, you're still thinking about a kind of audience a kind of reader Um, and in a sense being at a festival you're confronted with those people um, sometimes who may read your work or may have read your work and that changes the context for you to the work that you're writing sometimes in ways that are really uncomfortable uh, and somewhat sometimes in ways that are quite um yeah quite generous on their part and and quite rewarding on the part of the poet or of course that can all go horribly wrong but I think that you know poetry is, uh, certainly in Britain, it's a community, it's a small community. Um, places like this are times when you see people that, who you've been reading, and that's always quite nice. And I guess it gives us a sort of embodied sense that actually the poets that we read are real people. And speaking as a critic, I think that's really useful for me to remember, that it's not just the text that I'm looking at, but actually a kind of person who is there doing something, conjuring in some way the work.
0: So talking about yourself as a critic there, is that something you do as well as write poetry, writing, uh, poetry criticism as well.
2: I write about early 20th century women's writing, women's poets, so Nancy Cunard, Hope Murleys, Mina Loy, Um, but I also write about contemporary poetry and race, um, and I'm a reviewer, so I review for lots of different places. And I think that my concerns are always the ways in which the work is going to be most uh, appreciated, and how to provide that kind of context, and how to redress the historical imbalances of how we read, because books in themselves, we encounter them in all kinds of different ways. And the critic's job, whether you're a reviewer or you're a, a kind of scholar, is to be able to put those things in context. There's no there's no such thing as a kind of originary genius in any sort of book. Everything responds to something else. And it's the critic's responsibility to be able to recognize those things and to give that context to the reader.
0: Another thing that comes up quite a lot in the series, and I talk to people that are most poets hold a dual role. Their editors and their writers, their critics and their writers, their producers and writers. Mm -hmm. Are you able to be a critic and writer at the same time, or are they two separate roles? Obviously, they overlap uh, hugely, but are are they the same thing?
2: Yeah, as a kind of state of being. um, I think that the, in my experience at least, being a critic has changed the way that I wrote, and I felt that uh, I wasn't able to be. I definitely read myself uh, more in terms of thinking about the tradition after I became a critic, which is a shame. I think you lose something um, when you become an academic, particularly with academic writing, because you're so focused on being coherent and and reasoned, whereas in effect, the poetry for me doesn't come from those kinds of places. Uh, so the way that language arrives, I think, for me as a critic is very different and has an effect on how I write as a poet. But having said that, there are a lot of really great poets who manage to combine those things in the kind of lyric essays, you know, with, with like Noor Sadir's work, Claudia Rankin's book, Lyric Essays. Um, and so in a way that's kind of exciting because I think there is a real, there's a generation of writers who feel they can hybridize those forms and bring in philosophy and bring in a kind of critical voice um, or a lyrical voice that isn't necessarily broken into verse or lines, which is also quite exciting.
0: I hate those people that can do both. They're the worst. <laughs> I've, no, I, I, since running this series, I found that it's, has, it began to really stifle my own writing because mm-hmm. I started to think in quite a mechanical. Is That's the wrong term, but I can't think of a better word at the moment and we're running out of time. So I'll stick with mechanical, but I st- the thought processes around writing became very much how would I structure a program, how would I communicate that to an audience? And I started to apply those things to my own writing and then you stop playing in a way.
2: Yeah, um, I think so. I think you feel less free to play, but... I suppose you just kind of you learn the rules better and you learn new rules, and, and knowing the rules helps you um, break them. Um, so, I suppose in some ways, it's just about turning that to your advantage somehow. And it's, it doesn't do anyone any good to write work that actually feels quite, um, yeah, it feels quite sort of not banal, that's the wrong word, but feels like it's been done in some way before. Mm-hmm. So, actually, it's a challenge for the writer to be able to stand up against any form of tradition, canon, or even those writers that are marginal to it. To be able to say, here is something that I'm actually contributing that is fairly new or relevant.
0: Unfortunately, these chats are just too short. I think, so that we don't run over and knock the rest of the schedule for the day out of kilter, we might finish on the reading, if that's okay.
2: Yeah, of course. Thank you. So, I never write in form, but I'm going to read a poem that is a very uh, bad, it's a failed gazole, against chaos. Love could not have sent you in the shroud of song to wield against death your hollow flute tuned to chaos. Whatever the ancients said, matter holds the world to its bargain of hard frost. But life soon forgets chaos. He who has not strode the full length of age has counted, then lost count of days, that swallow like fever dark chaos. And you, strange company in the back seat of childhood, propped on a raft of memory, like some god of chaos, you threaten to drown me. Wind through palmed streets, oracle of grief. The vagrant dance of figures in chaos carting trash over tarmac, stench of Popeye's chicken. The Capitol Records building, injecting light and chaos into the LA sky. That paper boat in rainwater rushing dives out of my reach and old women give no order here to chaos nor calm with their familiar tales. Your voice follows me into and out of the wrong houses riding my heels in chaos, as if to say that every half-remembered element I've forged in glass is only the replicate dying shadow of love's chaos, that once spoken is like a poison dropped in the mouth of song, turning it dolorous and black. I've eaten this chaos, its paroxysm of birth, and seen it uncoil from the faces of loved ones into sickness and distance and loss, chaos that hounds, that drums its fingers on the window like rain, who will not forget me and permit me to reach across. 30 years for the child peering out over the very same landscape day after day. Yellowing day, that day of chaos, where you are still sounding your warning, though I was too young. To be left with the bitter heaviness of song, it's chaos.
0: Thank you very much, Sandip. Thank you, everybody. Um, let's all go and join in the celebration for Jane Comane's launch in that room over there. Thank you.